You can go ahead and turn to John chapter 5. Normally, I would begin by giving an introduction stating where we're going. I'm going to give my introduction before I tell you where we're going. In the year 1978, a man by the name of Charles Russell began a publication entitled Zion's Watchtower and Herald of Christ's Presence. The name was later shortened. Uh, The publication was changed to the name The Watchtower. And through the publication The Watchtower, Charles Russell began to disseminate uh, prophetic insight, things that God had revealed to him about the coming end of the world. Charles Russell prophesied the end of the harvest, the harvest of mankind on the earth would come in the year 1878. And when nothing changed in 1878 that was moved to 18, or 1881, he said in 1881 there will be, we will be translated into spirits, And then prophesied through his publication, The Watchtower, that the end of human rulership on earth, the kingdoms of man, would come in the year 1914. The group of leaders receiving these prophecies and disseminating these prophecies uh, became known as the Watchtower Society leading a church which we now know today as Jehovah's Witnesses. According to the Watchtower Society, eternal life is available to those who have accurate knowledge, to those who avoid immorality to a sufficient degree, to those who join the Watchtower Association and to those who share the Watchtower teachings with others. Those are the ones who will be saved. Actually, before Charles Russell, half a century earlier in 1820, Joseph Smith was... 15 years old, and according to his own telling, he went to a revival meeting in Palmyra, New York. And at this revival meeting, according to his account, there were a bunch of church leaders who got in an argument over doctrine, which is what you, you know, hope to find at a revival meeting. And they couldn't work out their differences, and Joseph Smith was very concerned about this, and so he left the meetings, and again, according to his own accounting, or his own account, he he left the meetings, and he went into the forest to pray and ask God for wisdom. God, how do I know which of these different denominational heads is correct? 
How do I know who is right? He recounts that he was visited by God the Father and Jesus the Son to set him straight. And they said, none of them are right. He was then on a couple of occasions by his own account visited by the angel named Moroni who revealed to him the correct path, who revealed to him the true identity of who Jesus was. He fathered a faith that we now know today as the Church of the Latter-day Saints or the Mormon faith, which teaches that in order to be saved, you must accept Joseph Smith's account of who Jesus actually was, and you must walk in obedience to everything that God commands. That is the basis of your salvation. whole millennia before that. In the year 610, there was a young man by the name of Muhammad, lived in Arabia, unhappy with the conflict that he saw in the society within which he lived, unhappy with moral decay bothered by these things, he would retreat to a place called Mount Hira, to a cave, to seek God's answers. And while in this cave, he was visited by an angel. The angel was named Gabriel. Gabriel revealed to him the truth about God, which had up until that point been lost. He revealed to Muhammad the corruption of the scriptures as we know it today, the Jewish scriptures and also the New Testament. He set Muhammad on the correct path through these revelations which included the rejection of the deity of Jesus. And as far as it pertains to salvation, you cannot know. You can seek to live in obedience to God, but no one can know with certainty their eternal state. Muhammad himself, later in his life, confessed his own uncertainty as to the state of his eternal soul. You back up even further, somewhere around the year 35, there was a devoutly religious man, a Jew, a follower of the Hebrew faith, who had taken it upon himself to purify the faith 
from religious defectors who were following the teachings of a man named Jesus. And so he would travel around the countryside, gathering up those who claimed to believe the teachings of Jesus, doing a number of things, including putting them to death. And then Saul describes an encounter that he had, a visitation, not from God the Father, not from an angel by any name, but a visitation from the man Jesus, the very one whose teachings he was on a mission to destroy. Paul says that that man Jesus that he saw in a vision on the road revealed some things to him. The truth about who God is and how we know him. In fact, Paul talks about this in Galatians. In Galatians 1, this isn't on the screen, let me just read it to you. This is, this is his recounting. This is his description. He's talking to this people uh, in Galatia. He says, I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different message, a different gospel, which is really not another gospel, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ, the good news, the message of Jesus. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel message that is contrary to what we have preached to you, that angel is accursed. And as we have said before, and I will say it again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. If any person or any spiritual being that, has, uh, that has, gives you the impression that they've come from another realm, he says, regardless of who it is, if they, if they try to convince you of a message contrary to the one that I received on that road, then that person or that angelic entity is in fact accursed, not from God. For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I did not receive it from man, nor was I taught it from man, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus." The message that I preach, I received from Jesus. Back up a few more years. Who is this guy that everyone's talking about? Who is this guy that everyone seems to want to revise? And what were his claims? 
Jesus says in John 5, 24, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment. In John 6, 40, in the next chapter, he says, for this is the will of my father, that everyone who beholds the son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. I want to ask you a question. Do you really believe the claims of Jesus? You do realize that if you believe the claims of Jesus and the claims of those who followed him, you believe some crazy stuff. And history has been speckled with those who have, in, in, in looking backwards, have sought to revise those claims. And not just revise them, but revise them at the behest of some divine encounter, some divine being that has told me how to revise these claims. Why do we believe Jesus, and is it reasonable to do so? I want to speak, first of all, to those who are on the front side of that, and then I'm going to end this morning by speaking to those who are on the other side of that question. But here's our premise And this comes from the words of Jesus, and this is our passage this morning, John 5.31. This is Jesus speaking. If I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. Isn't that fascinating? He doesn't say, if I'm just talking about me, then it might not be true. He doesn't say, if it's just me talking about me, It's probably not true. He says, if I alone testify about myself, do not believe me. It's not true. Jesus says, there's there's an implication that you should have, you should possess at least some degree of what we'll call healthy skepticism. Criticism. How then, if we're not simply taking Jesus at his word, how then do we establish the legitimacy of his claims, both about himself and his message, the gospel? How do you establish anything is true? Years ago, I was working for Phil Clay. You guys know Phil Clay? Some of you do. I was uh, installing cabinets, uh, cherry cabinets, very nice cabinets, at a home, a new construction, 
down skyline towards Olson Mountain. And I had taken Phil Clay's big box truck uh, full of cabinets up to the residence. I had delivered the cabinets and I was driving back down Skyline, back down to the shop, which I believe is on Race Court. And you know, well, it used to be that you would hit pavement right at the top of East Hill. You guys remember that? Well, right when you hit the pavement at the top of East Hill, to your right, for those who can recall visually, there is a line of culverts that are stacked vertically. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? That hold the embankment in, right? It's a very steep embankment that goes up to the other portion of Skyline. As I was coming down the gravel road doing about 35 miles an hour, just before I hit the pavement, a moose leapt out of the bushes off of the top of those culverts and landed on his kneecaps skidding across the pavement in front of me. On the other side of Skyline, there's a guardrail and a very steep embankment. And so I, being an 18-year-old, not quite in full possession of my mental capacities, hit the gas pedal. <laughs> Let's play this thing out. There on Skyline Drive, in Phil Clay's box truck, with nowhere for the moose to go for the embankment, I caught up to that moose. We were side by side, eyeball to eyeball, and my speedometer said 40 miles an hour. Do you know how you know that that actually happened? You never will because I was the only one there. <laughs> it was one of the highlights of my life and one of the saddest moments because I had no one to share it with. How do you know anything is true? How do you establish claims of truth that seem preposterous? Jesus is going to give us some guidance, and I'm going to move through these fairly quickly. He says there are four witnesses that corroborate my own witness about myself. The first witness is the witness of John the Baptist. He says in John 5.32, there is another who testifies of me. And I know that the testimony which he gives about me is true. You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. He says, as a, as a first matter of business in establishing my witness, you already know John, John the Baptist. You already respect him. He is already your, your, your spiritual authority, and he has given witness to who I am. This is one way that you will establish the truth of who I am. I would tell you this morning, there is a succession of agreeing witnesses who have pointed to Jesus throughout history. Even for me right now, today, 
As I find myself asking questions of myself about the legitimacy of following the claims of Jesus, as one reference point, I look at my elders and I say, these are men who are men of integrity, men of character, men that I admire. And they have borne witness to the truth claims of Jesus. I look beyond them to the testimony of other men that I respect who are faith fathers for us today. For me, the writings of Tim Keller, Matt Chandler, C.S. Lewis, these are men that I respect, that I trust, who have said, no, the witness is true. He is who he claims to be. But just in case you are tempted to trust in men a little too much, Jesus continues in verse 34, but the testimony which I receive is not from man. But I say these things so that you may be saved. He was the lamp that was burning and was shining, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. He says, the testimony of John agrees with who I have said I am, and yet it does not establish it. John's witness should be an encouragement to you, but John's witness does not make me who I am. First witness, John. And then he continues, he says, and there is a second witness, the witness of my works. He continues in John 5.36, the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John for the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do testify about me that the Father has sent me. Do you remember a couple of weeks ago when we talked about Nicodemus? This is what Nicodemus said when he snuck in at night to talk to Jesus. He says, so here's the deal. Uh, we don't like you, but we cannot deny that what you're doing is from God. We cannot deny the power of your ministry, and because of that, I have some questions. Jesus says, first of all, there is the witness of others who have borne witness of me. Secondly, there is an experiential evidence consistent with the testimony of Jesus. The experiential evidence is the testimony of his power at work in our lives. There are some crazy promises that Jesus made that we hold to. The question is, is there an experience consistent with those promises? For me, it's one of the many benefits of being meaningfully connected to the church body is week after week hearing the testimonies of the power of Jesus at work in your lives. And I say to myself, maybe he is really real because everyone keeps running into him in powerful ways in their own lives apart from my involvement. 
They're encountering him. I love hearing the testimony of our prayer teams. Do you know that here at Church on the Rock, God has been healing people of physical issues miraculously? Do you know that here at Church on the Rock, God has been healing people of emotional wounds miraculously, transforming them into a new creature? When I look at the witness, the power of Jesus in my own marriage, I say, yeah, it's real. I've seen his miraculous hand at work. For those who are down on experience as an argument for faith, Jesus says, you had better have a set of experiences consistent with my claims. Otherwise, you would have a reason to be suspicious. And then he goes on, he says, there's a third witness. Don't just believe John. Don't just believe because of the, the, the power at work, the miraculous power of God at work through me. Believe because God himself, the Father, has borne witness of me. John 5.37, and the Father who sent me, he has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time or seen his form. I actually asked my staff this week, what does that mean? when it says that the Father has borne witness of the Son. I think one possible uh, explanation is the two times where from heaven, the people around Jesus heard a voice say, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. It happened when John the Baptist baptized Jesus. It wasn't just John that heard it. It wasn't just Jesus, but it was the whole crowd of people there heard the Father from heaven communicate his, not only the identity of, but his pleasure in his Son. And then at the transfiguration, you remember this, when, when James and John and Peter are with Jesus and they see Moses and Elijah and then they hear a voice from heaven say, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus says, so as a third piece of evidence, I don't know if you've noticed, but my, my father keeps bragging about me from heaven. But I think also there is another way that God the Father has been giving testimony as to the identity of his Son, and that is through the fourth witness. And that is the witness of Scripture, John 5.38. You do not have his word abiding in you. Now he's talking to the religious leaders who had the word memorized. For you do not believe him whom he sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in the scriptures you have eternal life, and yet it is these that were telling you all along about me. 
and you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. There they were, tempting to be diligent students of the word of God, seeking to understand through God's revealed word, how do I have eternal life? And yet over time, they had, they had lost all sense of relational connection to God. It became about establishing for myself a sense of self-righteousness. It became about setting up a very extensive and detailed to-do list and then comparing my to-doing against your to-doing. And if I was to-doing better than the rest of you are to-doing, then I probably have a good chance of ending up in heaven. And Jesus says, and you missed me from start to finish. I was there. And you didn't see me. When God said to Abraham, through you I will bless all nations, he was talking about me. I am the blessing. Not me, Aaron Weiser, Jesus. When Abraham said there at the altar, with his son about to be sacrificed, when he said, in the mount of the Lord, a substitute sacrifice will be provided, he was talking about me. When Moses told you to cover the doorpost of your home with the blood of a spotless lamb so that you would be saved from death, he was talking about me. When Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, telling the people of Israel if they look to that cursed creature, they will be saved, he was talking about me. When Moses struck the rock and water came from the rock, he was talking about me. When Daniel spoke of a rock that was not cut with human hands, but came and and brought an end to the kingdoms of man and grew into a mountain covering the face of the entire earth, he was talking about me. And you failed on this point. You fail to see me there because I am there from start to finish. God the Father, through his Spirit, has been bearing witness to Jesus the Son through his Scripture from Genesis all the way through to the end. Let's go back and read it. Take a look. The witness is there. I'm going to give you a very carefully worded warning. I know that we have many here fellowshipping with us this morning who come from a variety of backgrounds. 
And you may have, and by backgrounds, I mean church background experiences. And you may have some confusion about the differences. And some of you maybe even wonder why I highlighted the ones that I did in my introduction. You need to understand this. The witness of Jesus, who he said he was, and the witness of his works, even if an angel shows up to you personally and says it's something other than what's already been witnessed to, even if if, if a guy in white with wings shows up in your bedroom or your office or in the woods and says, I have a secret message that brings an adjustment to the testimony of Jesus, it is not from him. It's a distortion. It's a rejection. And it's dangerous. And then Jesus gets to the heart of the matter. And this is for those who are on the other side of having decided about Jesus. I'm going to invite the worship team up. He says in John 5.44, he identifies the true barrier to belief. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? You understand what Jesus just did? He went through all of the validations of his claims, and at the end of that list of validations, of proofs, he said, now let's be honest, it's not for lack of evidence, it's not for lack of proof, it's because you have no interest in what God has invited you to. You are motivated by building your own kingdom, not by seeking the glory that comes from me, not by seeking with a whole heart, with all of your strength, soul, mind, to love God with everything that I am. You're not interested in that. So the witnesses don't matter. Because at the end of the day, your heart is not for me. And I want to lay out a particular challenge to you this morning. For those of you who hear the list of witnesses and you say, yes, I learned that when I was seven years old, it's not a big deal. You need to understand something. In fact, we talked about this in our youth group recently. Giving mental assent, cognitive agreement to the claims is not the substance of belief. To say, I accept the claims, is not the substance of faith. The substance of faith 
is a life that has been transformed such that I am primarily motivated by the glory of God. That's the substance of faith. And just as the Pharisees read through all of the scripture, read through all of the word of God, and completely missed the point, we too today can check off all of the boxes, say, yep, yep, great, good, good. I've got it. Thinking that we have solved the riddle to eternal life. And he says, really, the heart of the issue is you can't pursue your own glory and the glory of God at the same time. They're the opposite direction. Really, the issue is, is that you are not motivated by a sincere desire to please God. And if you're a, an infant in your faith this morning, but you come before the Lord and you say, I have a sincere desire to please you, help me. You're on equal footing with everyone who has ever sought after God. If you are here this morning and you say, yeah, I've checked the boxes, but as I look at the, the details of my life, is there evidence that I, that I seek the glory of God? You could turn your heart today. You could repent today and say, God, that's not me. I mean, I believe, but I don't believe. Choose today, regardless of where you're at. Choose today. Give yourself fully, completely, entirely to Jesus Christ. Because through him, we have eternal life now and in eternity. It's available to you. Would you stand? God, I ask that you would through the power of your spirit break down those obstacles to faith. That you would uh, remove The, the scales from our eyes that deceive us about who you are, your identity, your claims. God, I pray that at the end of agreeing that you are who you said you are, that we would live a life that broadcasts your glory through the way that we approach relationships, our work, our money, that you would be glorified. Give us true faith. We ask this in Jesus' powerful name. We have a couple of ways to respond. We're going to celebrate Jesus together in worship, uh, something that we're called to do. There, are, there will be a couple of people over here uh, available to pray. If you need to experience, to encounter the power of God at work in your life, 
and you would like someone to pray with you towards that end, whatever your need is, they'll be available. Uh, we celebrate the, uh, the death of Christ on the cross. He says, remember my death until I return by taking communion, the cup and the bread, the body and the blood of Jesus spilled for us. We also celebrate through our giving. Uh, they're offering receptacles along the back. But I'd ask you just to take a moment to come before the Lord honestly, to hear from him now as we worship. Let's worship together. And that was awesome. Thank you guys so much. Uh, I was talking with someone some uh, months back and they were sharing about their experience. They grew up in the church, been in church their whole life. And they're now uh, almost 40. And they were sharing about uh, just a, a handful of years ago, they went through a difficult time and they were, uh, they said it was like for the first time, the gospel just made sense to them. And this is someone that spent, you know, up to then 35 years in church. So my invitation to you this morning is let the gospel be real. It should lead to transformation. It should lead to meeting with the living God. That your heart would be transformed by meeting God. And that your life would be motivated by pleasing Him, by meeting with Him in a powerful way.